Well, last week we had the wonderful opportunity to hear the first part of the story, verses 1 through 9 through Pastor Mark. And we saw together Saul's incredible encounter with the living Christ. This Christ who Saul was actively persecuting by persecuting the church. And we spent our time considering how amazing it was that Saul, who was not only a sworn enemy, but one who was also actively destroying the church, could receive grace. Why in the world would Saul be a candidate for God's saving kindness in Christ? Surely he had done too much wrong. Surely his sins against the church disqualified him. But no, we saw together that God's grace knows no limits when it encounters human sin, even the sin of actively destroying the church as a persecutor. Yet it's one thing for Saul to be approached by the risen Christ and reconciled to him, but it's another thing for him, for the church to accept Saul and for him to become a spokesperson for the message he was trying to snuff out. And that's exactly what we see in our passage today. You see, Jesus doesn't just convert people and leave them alone. Rather, Jesus makes his enemies part of his church and he enlists them in his gospel spreading work. We could say it another way. Being reconciled to Jesus includes becoming part of his family, the church, and sharing in the family's mission. If you're not already there in your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts 9, chapter 9, verse 10. But we need to take a peek back over the previous nine verses to remember where we've come from. First in verse 1, we find out that Saul hasn't given up his quest to destroy the church. Rather, he's upping his game. Evidently terrorizing the Jerusalem church wasn't good enough. Now he wants to pursue Christians who have fled to Damascus or who are living there already. He secured permission from the high priest to bring any follower of Christ back to Jerusalem as a prisoner. But as he nears the city, a blinding light appears and he's knocked to the ground and Jesus himself confronts him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asks who he is. To which Jesus replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So Saul gets off of his feet, but he can no longer see. The men traveling with him are forced to lead him into Damascus. And once in the city, he spends three days without food or water in total darkness, not being able to see. Can you imagine with me what that would have been like? Saul has been zealously chasing down followers of Christ, thinking he can see clearly and that they are a dangerous sect that needs to be destroyed. Now he's struck blind, a picture that he really hasn't been seeing clearly all along. He's confronted by Christ himself, completely humbled and left in need of others to guide him. I can imagine he felt broken and lost and in desperate need. This would be kind of like when someone is in a car wreck and suddenly everything changes. When they wake up in the hospital and they realize that they have an uncertain future ahead of them. For Saul, everything had changed. He had thought he was on the right path, only to find out that he was not. And so he waits for further direction. Now we might expect Jesus just to simply show up and heal Saul's blindness and talk to him some more through a vision, but that's not Jesus' plan. Instead, he sends a disciple, 
Look with me at verse 10. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of, Sar- of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now all we know about this man, Ananias, is that he's a disciple from this passage. But later on in the book of Acts, in chapter twenty-two, twelve, we find out that he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. The Lord chooses to visit Ananias in a vision. And to his surprise, the Lord asks him to go and to pray for Saul. Now, of course, Ananias is he's shocked. But the Lord is not only using a vision to speak to him, he's also using a vision to speak to Saul, to tell him that Ananias is going to come to him. This double vision is meant to make it very clear that it's the Lord's will for these two men to meet. Notice also what stands out about what Jesus, is, Jesus says that Saul is doing. He is praying. The text highlights that with this phrase, for behold, suggesting that this is, this is of importance. Something has happened to this man. He's been humbled, it appears. Yet Ananias is quick to point out what he's heard about Saul. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many men about this, from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now let's just stop here and try to understand Ananias' perspective. Let's pretend that we don't know the rest of the story yet. Ananias knows about what Saul has been doing in Jerusalem. Do you remember what we read in, in Acts 8, 8, 3? Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And later in Acts 22 and 26, we find out that some of those men and women were killed. So as a result of Saul's efforts, the believers are scattered forced to flee Jerusalem as religious refugees. So Ananias has heard about all this evil from many witnesses. Well, think with me. Just a hypothetical situation. What would it be like? Say there's a religious sect that hates Christians and they were successful in ransacking churches in the Tacoma area, arresting whomever they chose. And this particular sect was influential enough with the local government that they were even able to get the government to approve of a number of executions. In the aftermath and chaos of this attack, a number of those Christians come up to Polsbo to get away, and our church opens our homes to help give them a place to stay. They share their stories of the evil that has happened to them. They share how this sect has ransacked their Sunday morning gatherings. They share of family members and friends dragged off to jail. Some of them then executed. They share of broken families, moms and dads missing, friends gone, pastors taken. Then you find out that members of this sect are coming to Polsbo to hunt down more Christians. You probably aren't going to be going out to the street corners to promote Christianity at that moment, are you? Instead, the church would be taking wise precautions. But you can imagine, but can you imagine with me, 
being asked by the Lord to approach one of these sect members and to pray for them. This means taking a risk. Ananias has reason to be afraid. And Jesus knows he needs to help Ananias with his objections. I think this is why Jesus is communicating to him in a vision. He wants Ananias to know that he is hearing accurately from him. And Jesus is okay to explain more about the situation. He's already told Ananias that Saul is praying and that he is blind and that Saul has also seen a vision. Here in response to Ananias' concern, Jesus repeats his command to go and lets Ananias see into Saul's future ministry. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Notice that all Ananias knows is that Saul is a murderous persecutor. But Jesus knows something far greater. He knows the mission that he has for Saul, the special role that he will play in the advance of the gospel. Would this be enough to make you go and pray for Saul? Using our hypothetical situation, could you go and pray over this one, knowing what this person is capable of? Ananias is asked to act in faith, trusting his Savior's words, which is exactly what he does. In verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Did you catch what Ananias called Saul? He called him brother. Remember, who's he talking to? Saul the persecutor. Saul the outsider. The one who's been causing all the problems for the church. But Ananias, notice he wastes no time affirming him as part of the close fellowship of believers. He's saying that Saul is coming in as close family now. Ananias trusts the words spoken by Jesus in the vision. He believes that Saul has changed and should now be welcomed into the church. Saul regains his sight, arises and is baptized. And in the very next verse, we find him spending time with the disciples. Remember, these are the very people that he came to capture as prisoners. And now they're going to spend time together in fellowship. Do you find it significant that Saul isn't just left to himself? Jesus immediately involved Ananias, who was then able to connect Saul to the church. See, Saul's not meant to be a lone ranger. The New Testament, in fact, knows nothing of individual Christians who are not connected with a local church. Can you imagine what this would have been like for Saul to come into this church? Certainly humbling to admit he was so wrong. But also, he must have felt genuinely grateful to be welcomed in by these disciples. Saul is no longer an outsider to them. Rather, he's been made an insider. Saul has a new home. You see, this is what Jesus does with his enemies. 
He brings them out of the world system into a community where he is Lord and he unites them with brothers and sisters who also love and serve Jesus. He puts them into a body where they can mutually grow and love and serve each other. Yet we, we know in gaining fellowship, the fellowship of the church, that Saul has left a lot behind. In becoming an insider with the believers, he's now become an outsider with the Jews that he previously associated with. And we're going to see how this affects him right away. You see, Saul has not only been given a new home, the church, he also has a new mission, which is just unthinkable that God in his mercy would pardon him, give him a new home, and then include him in his gospel work. Christ has commissioned him to carry his name, and Saul wastes no time in proclaiming Christ. Empowered by the Spirit, Saul, according to verse 20, immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Notice that Saul's first place of ministry is to the Jews in the synagogues. This becomes a pattern for him in ministry. And later, he's more directly called to the Gentiles, but he still makes it his practice to approach the Jews in every community that he goes into first. So right away, we see him beginning to fulfill the mission that Christ said he would have. Remember, he said in verse 15 that Saul would carry his name before the children of Israel. And of course, this surprises everyone in Damascus who knew why he was there. Saul's ministry begins to grow and have an impact. Verse 22 says, "But But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What does it mean here that he was increasing in strength? One commentator explains, when Luke says that Saul grew more and more powerful, the term he uses suggests the empowerment of the Spirit. The way in which that empowerment was experienced is indicated by what follows. Saul baffled the Jews, throwing them into confusion, as Stephen did with his God-given wisdom in Acts 6.10. He did this by proving, no doubt, from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Faced with such arguments, his hearers were neither able to respond positively to his message nor contradict it effectively. Now you might be wondering how Saul could be so well-versed in the scriptures so as to argue effectively with these Jews. But we know that Saul was trained to become a teacher of the law and he sat under the well-respected teacher named Gamaliel. So his training in the Old Testament now is being used to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ. Saul is arguing effectively that Jesus is the one that God had promised would come to die for his people's sins. Then also to be raised to life, to reign over his people forever. This is the very message that this man Saul has been trying to stamp out. Yet now his arguments are so effective His opponents decide they need to get rid of him. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now first we should note that Luke tells us here that it's been many days that they have passed. He does not tell us how many in Galatians 1.18, Saul tells us that he left Damascus for a period of time 
and then came back. And then he mentions that there was a period of three years before he went up to Jerusalem. So this many days very likely could have been a three-year period during which Saul actually lived in Arabia. But Luke here is not concerned with that detail. He wants us to see that Saul's preaching of Christ led to animosity and to hatred. Whatever the exact timetable here, the reaction from the Jews to Saul's preaching ministry is not positive. Their arguments are not successful against his spirit-enabled wisdom, and they are not about to let this continue. Does it surprise you how quickly they moved toward attempting to kill him? They didn't attempt to chase him out of town or threaten him. Rather, they went straight to an attempt to take his life. But thankfully, the Lord has other plans. Saul finds out about the plot and his disciples help him escape. The opening in the wall would have been a window from someone's house as houses were built into the city walls of those times. That's a detail Saul actually supplies us in 2 Corinthians 11 on his account of this. But look who is helping him escape. His disciples. The fact that he has disciples here shows that he's teaching and instructing others in the faith by this time. The Lord is at work in him to fulfill the great commission that he has given them to make disciples of every nation. So Saul, on the cover of night, escapes Damascus. This was not his plan coming into this city. He intended to bring Christians as prisoners back to Jerusalem. Now he's the one who's fleeing for his life. The suffering in verse 16 that Christ had predicted would be an inevitable part of his ministry has in fact begun. So having narrowly escaped death in Damascus, Paul travels to Jerusalem. And since he's now at odds with the Jews, he turns now to join the disciples there. But notice they're not ready for him to join their ranks. And for good reason. Remember what we said about Saul's actions? He was enemy number one against the church. He was personally responsible for ruthlessly causing havoc by arresting men and women and supporting their executions. These disciples in Jerusalem, in this church, felt the sting of Saul's actions. They had lost dads, moms, friends, leaders because of Saul. The evil he committed broke up families, caused pain, and forced many to flee. And now he wants to join their ranks? Verse 26 says, they did not believe that he was a disciple. It's very similar to what Ananias experienced when he was afraid to go and pray for Saul. What would you have done if you were in their shoes? Here it's going to take some intervention to solve the problem. And that resolution came from Barnabas who we were first introduced to in 436 as a son of encouragement. Encouragement is exactly what Saul needs here. And it's exactly what the disciples need in order to welcome Saul into their midst. So what does Barnabas do? Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas goes to bat for Saul by explaining what happened to him and sharing what a difference it had made. The fact that Saul now is preaching Christ 
is proof that he has been changed. As one commentator wrote, So Barnabas helped the apostles to accept Saul as a Christian and to welcome him as a fellow believer and partner in the gospel. So Saul is welcomed not only at the church at Damascus, but now at the Jerusalem church with the approval of the apostles. This is amazing. Saul, the one who had ravaged the church at Jerusalem, is now welcomed in as a fellow believer and a partner in the gospel. The one who had caused so much pain and suffering is forgiven and accepted. The one who had attempted to snuff out the message is now allowed to proclaim the message, which is exactly what he does. He immediately begins preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Look with me at verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now this is significant because the Hellenists were the same Jewish group that Stephen had debated. Do you see the irony here? Saul was the one who stood by and approved of Stephen's stoning, which came about because of his conflict with the Hellenists. So now he is the one who's taking Stephen's place and arguing for the gospel with these, this group of Jewish leaders. And the result is the same. They, they decide to attempt to kill him, just like in Damascus. In response to Saul's proclamation, a certain group of Jews rises up and seeks to take his life. Again, Saul is beginning to experience the suffering that Jesus said would be part of his calling. So Saul's new mission is getting him into trouble. Yet notice here, who comes to his aid? Saul's new home, the church, the people of God. It is the church, the brothers. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. You remember how Ananias had called Saul a brother? Here the disciples again are called brothers reinforcing the kind of community of mutual love and commitment that Saul has been brought into. Saul is in danger. So the church acts to protect one of their own. Now this section closes with a summary statement that describes a new chapter in the life of the church. Chapter 8 had opened with the onslaught of persecution and the scattering that took place as a result. And while the season of persecution was severe, God had used it in the church to cause the church to spread out. Now the church enjoys a season of peace. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Notice that the persecution that arose under the leadership of Saul has been ironically squelched. Its leader has been converted. Saul has changed sides. The threat of persecution has not ruined the church. Rather, she has come out stronger, and the gospel continues to advance unhindered. Isn't this a stunning display of the power of God in the gospel? Here we have strong opposition rising up, attempting to destroy the church. And what does Jesus do? He could have easily condemned Saul in his sin. For all the evil that Saul had done, he could have ended his life or brought judgment to him. But he didn't. Instead, he had mercy on him. 
Jesus approaches Saul, his enemy, and brings reconciliation. He offers him forgiveness. But not only that, he brings Saul into his earthly family, the church. And he's now a member of the group he had tried to destroy. Jesus doesn't hold Saul's sin over his head and keep him as an outsider. No, he brings him right in. And he doesn't tell him to take a seat in the stands and watch. Instead, he calls him into the ministry of gospel proclamation. He appoints him to carry his name before Jew and Gentile alike. And as the story of Acts unfolds, we see more and more of Saul as God uses him to dramatically advance the gospel. What does this mean for us? Well, again, as Mark shared last week, it means first that there is no one too far gone. No one has sinned so much that Christ will not go after them. The hardest heart, the one who most fiercely opposes Christianity, the one who ridicules you for your faith, Jesus in his kindness can still rescue them. And if that's you this morning, if you are running from Christ, or if you've been adamantly opposed to him, you are not too far gone. You too can receive the mercy that Saul received. If you come to Christ humbly, acknowledging your sin, he will not turn you away. You see, this is the story of the gospel, which is good news for the sinner. Later on, Saul would say it this way, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, Jesus came seeking those who were opposed to him. He came to serve them and take away their sin, even though they were his enemies. Dying a cruel death on the cross, Jesus took the punishment they deserved so they wouldn't have to bear it any longer. He paid what they couldn't pay, and he paid with his whole life. Saul would later say this about what Jesus did for him on the cross. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. But the good news doesn't stop there. Jesus didn't just die for sin, as Saul found out on the road to Damascus. Jesus rose again, and he is alive today. You see, death was not allowed to keep Jesus in the grave because Jesus had never sinned. He didn't deserve to die. So when God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, he declared him innocent. And as the only innocent human being who has ever lived, Jesus alone has a perfect record of obedience and right living before God. And this record, God the Father promises to bestow on everyone who comes to Christ. What does that mean for you? You too can enjoy the favor of God by turning from your sin and trusting what Christ has done to make you right with him. Jesus was treated like your sin was his so that God could treat you with the favor that Jesus deserves. You, through though far from Christ, can be brought near today. And like Saul, you can be forgiven and restored to Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have already turned to Christ in full dependence on his grace, who turned away from every other hope of salvation apart from Christ. I want to ask you this morning, do you see yourself in Saul's story? Now, I know that Saul's story is unique. To my knowledge, no one in this room has been actively attacking the church through persecution. However, we should all be able to say, if we're honest with ourselves, 
that we were enemies of God before he found us. And our rebellion against God may have looked like a thousand different things. It could have looked like outward rebellion, perhaps flagrant disregard for God's law. It could have looked like deceit or sexual immorality or fits of anger or or stealing or cheating, etc. Or maybe your rebellion was more inward, like pride, self-sufficiency, or thinking that somehow you could fix your broken relationship with God on your own. Whatever the individual mix of sin, we can admit that we are lost. We were lost, choosing our way, living outside the will of God in rebellion to him. And Jesus, in his loving kindness, saw fit to reach out to us and offer us forgiveness. Headed down our own Damascus road, the light of the gospel shined into our lives, and Jesus rescued us from our sinful ways. Jesus restored us to right relationship with God. But when he rescued us, he didn't leave us alone. Just like he didn't leave Saul alone, but he directed him into the church. The church was vital to Saul, and it's meant to be vital for us as well. And we could talk a long time about the blessings of being in a local church, but to start with, let's just look and see which blessings Saul experienced in our passage. First of all, prayer. Ananias laid his hands on Saul and prayed for him. Have you ever stopped to consider how valuable it is to have people in the church praying for you? All believers are priests before God and have direct access to Jesus Christ. When a brother or sister offers to pray for me, it's such a huge encouragement, especially when life is pressing in and I feel weak and low. But Ananias didn't just pray for Saul. He spoke into Saul's life. Now, most of us will will never have a vision that we're supposed to relay to another believer. But we can always encourage and admonish each other using God's word as our guide, can we not? We can point out the good and gently confront the bad. I don't know how many times the Lord has used the words from another believer to help me stay on the right path or to lift me up. Or third, Paul receives acceptance. Ananias calls Saul a brother and welcomes him into the church. Even with his past, the church took him in. In a world that's starving for acceptance, the church has the greatest reason to be accepting of others. We've first been accepted by God, the God of the universe, through his son's death. Which takes us to our fourth blessing here, and that's fellowship. We aren't given details about Saul's interaction with the believers, exactly what they were up to, but in the first century context of hospitality, It's reasonable to assume that meals were shared together and the truth of the Bible and the gospel were discussed. Sometimes we underestimate the value of sharing meals and talking candidly about the Lord with each other. This is part of what it means to live life together, to partake in community. And our fellowship as a church is not based on shared hobbies or interests. No, our fellowship is based on our shared love relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what holds us together. The fifth thing we see is help. In two different circumstances, Saul's life was on the line and he needed others to help him escape. We often prefer to do things on on our own, don't we? 
But the reality is we can't. We need help from others in the body. It could be that we have a very practical need, like meals. It could be a spiritual need. And we all have giftings and abilities that can be used by each other to meet different needs. These gifting abilities are gifts of grace that God has bestowed on us for the common good of others. The last thing we see here is encouragement from Barnabas. Saul needed someone else to bridge the gap and to build trust with others. Barnabas affirmed his conversion and gave testimony to his new life in Christ. All of us can use help from each other to continue to building relationships in the body. And besides these six blessings, which are vital, there are many more blessings we could talk of that flow from being part of the local church. Just to name a few, the abiding presence of God, the preaching and teaching of God's word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, spiritual oversight and accountability, opportunities to serve and give. The list could go on for some time. I'm merely trying to show you what an amazing blessing it is to be part of a local church and how vital it is to our walk with Christ. We are not called to walk alone. The church is our new home, even though it's imperfect. Even though sometimes it's painful and difficult, Christ wants us to be deeply connected to his church. And this is a two-way relationship, isn't it? We receive benefits and we contribute to others so they might benefit. One of the ways in which we contribute to others is by welcoming in those who are new to the church and new to the faith. And this may not be easy for us. We saw in our story that Ananias was stretched in his faith when he was asked to pray for Paul. He had to take a risk to welcome him. And like Ananias, we can trust that the Lord is going to bless our efforts as we're obedient to him and we welcome in those who are new to our church or new to the faith. We also contribute to each other by being willing and ready to forgive one another. Now this is not stated directly in our passage, but I think it's reasonable to assume that Ananias and the rest of the church at Damascus and the church at Jerusalem had to practice forgiveness with Saul. Saul had hurt a lot of people. Everyone was either directly affected or indirectly affected. And now this Saul is is asking to be part of the church which means reconciliation and forgiveness need to be extended to him. The hurt and pain he had caused needed to be forgiven. Now, it's probably rare in our world for us to have that dramatic situation arise when a new convert comes into the church. But it could happen that we have been offended in the past by someone who now is a Christian. And we need to be ready to forgive them. We must also be ready to forgive each other inside the church, week in and week out, as we continue to fail and sin and struggle together. Yet isn't what forgiveness, isn't this at the core of our life as Christians now, the core of our message? Do you remember Stephen's prayer as he was being stoned to death? He prayed that God would not hold his executioner's sin against them. Saul was one of those there. He was approving of Stephen's death. 
So God answered Stephen's prayer. Jesus came to Saul and offered forgiveness and reconciliation. And as Saul received that forgiveness, he became a minister of forgiveness and reconciliation. Later on, Saul would go on to say this about his ministry from 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, we, like Saul, have been given the gift of enjoying the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And now we, like Saul, have the great privilege to share this forgiveness, this message with the world. This is our new mission. We get to take the message of reconciliation across the street to our neighbors or across the office to our coworkers, across the hallway to our classmates, even across cultures to different people groups. We get to be his royal ambassadors, imploring those around us to be reconciled to God. So as we rejoice in being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, let us live vitally connected to his local church and on mission to spread this message of reconciliation, this message about Christ's forgiveness to everyone we have the opportunity to do so. Let's pray.